0: you'll see in your bulletin, the passage this morning is from Romans chapter 4, and then there's another passage we're going to read together. We're trying as we go through the book of Romans to both look specifically at every verse in the, in the book, but then to memorize certain portions together. So that's why we'll read the congregational reading. Um, Romans 5, 1 through 5, very simply put, if you ever wonder, well, why does God allow suffering? Romans 5 is a really succinct answer to suffering. So this is, you know, it has its place in the whole grand scheme of the uh, salvation that God uh, works out within us. So uh, if you're able, would you please stand, and we're going to hear the reading of God's Word, and then we will read together. First of all, let me read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The passage we'll look at this morning, the Word of God says this, "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh?' For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And now would you read with me Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you'd be with us here this morning, that you'd be at work through your word, giving us what we need, the eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you open our hearts that your Spirit would have uh, His way within us, that You would work out within us uh, more of, uh, of You and less of us, that we would glorify You and worship You, and we would be made more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do this this morning for Your glory and for our good, we ask in Your name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we begin looking at Romans chapter 4, I want to begin with a question, uh, and it's a question I think helps us to understand what Paul's doing in Romans 4, and simply put, here's the question. How would you go about trying to convince someone that you, you dearly loved, how would you go about trying to convince them that some long-held belief that they had was indeed false, that it was, it was not a true belief? Maybe it's some belief that they had held for generations that had been passed down from their parents and their parents' parents a belief that their whole community held, that people that they respected highly, that they held this belief, how would you go about trying to convince them that they were indeed wrong and that some other belief was indeed true? How would you go about that work? As I uh, thought about that question, I was trying to think about illustrations of this and uh, uh, how I've seen this done before. One of the first things that came to my mind was the first Toy Story movie. Uh, probably the best of all the Toy Story movies, right? And the first Toy Story movie, probably three-quarters of the movie, deals with this plot. Uh, Buzz Lightyear is the new toy. shows up as one of Andy's toys, but Buzz Lightyear is convinced that he's not a toy. He is convinced that he's an astronaut who travels to other planets and fights off alien invaders. So most of the humor in the first movie and a lot of the storyline revolves around the other toys trying to convince Buzz Lightyear that he's indeed a toy. And all along the way, um, nothing they do is successful. They're pressing his buttons and showing him that his lasers are simply um, LED lights and they don't really do anything. And They cannot convince him no matter what they do until the, the sort of the pinnacle of the movie, Buzz tries to fly and he comes crashing to the ground and he finally realizes that he is actually a toy, okay? So let me ask you again, how would you go about trying to convince somebody that a dearly held belief that they had was indeed not true? As you think about what Paul's doing in the epistle to the Romans, this is the task before the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul is writing to Jews and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, many of whom had a long-standing belief that God declares us righteous by works of the law, uh, that through obedience to the law, that through the things that we do, that God credits that to us as righteousness, okay? And so Paul is confronting this idea is one of the many reasons that the epistle to the Romans is so long, right? He, throughout this entire book, is trying to unravel a tradition that has been around for a 1,000 years or more trying to unravel this tradition and to expose or to reveal the truth in the eyes and the ears of those who would listen and would see, and to show them that God's righteousness is by grace through the vehicle of faith. And so that's the task before the Apostle Paul. So you think about this. Paul has been building this argument. He's stated some of the facts. He's explained what he means. And one of the most powerful arguments at his disposal is to begin to cite examples from the Old Testament, right, to support his argument. And so he begins in Romans chapter 4, and he begins with Abraham. And you think about this. I, I was thinking this morning if I had a whiteboard, I would have drawn a picture of Abraham, okay? And that's because I want you to have in your minds, as we work through this middle portion of the book of Romans, That Paul has now shifted from the statement of his argument to the citing of examples. And we will hear about Moses and David and Jacob and Esau. We will hear about other Old Testament characters, but this morning he begins with Abraham. Abraham, example number one. Okay? And so this morning, as we talk about Abraham, three questions we'll answer. Why does Paul cite Abraham? Why has it been believed? by the majority of people that Abraham was justified by works. And then why does Paul say that Abraham was indeed justified by God's grace through faith, okay? That's the three things we're doing this morning. First point then. Why does Paul cite Abraham? Of all the people that Paul could choose, why does he begin with Abraham? Two answers I want you to hear in response to this question. First of all, Paul cites Abraham because he was Uh, exceedingly significant to the Jewish people, okay? He was exceedingly significant, therefore this becomes an exceedingly powerful argument in the sighting of Abraham. Think about this, the Jewish people. Abraham was not only the father of their bloodline, he was the one through whom all the promises of God had come to the people. He was the visible picture of the purity of God's people. And to Abraham above all of the other fathers of their religion, they looked, he was Father Abraham. And so you could say David, Moses, and Abraham, three significant figures, uh, maybe the most significant, Abraham stood above even David and Moses. And so Paul begins with Abraham. You think about it, you go through the Old Testament, the, the life of Abraham in Genesis, yet there's mention of him throughout the entire Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament, eight of the nine authors of the New Testament, will cite Abraham as evidence of God's continuing work. They lean upon Abraham very heavily because of the sway that he held in the minds, especially of the Jewish people, but of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians as well. And so Paul begins with Abraham. I was trying to think, how do, how do I explain this? How do I capture what this feels like? Imagine you're having a political conversation with your neighbor and you guys disagree vehemently. And imagine you said to your neighbor, but did you know that George Washington held my same belief, right? And that would be kind of the, the uh, convincing argument you give. And of course, George Washington has a lot of sway and sort of the minds of Americans. Multiply that by like 10 or 100, and you begin to get a feeling uh, for the influence that Abraham had on the Jewish people, and the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Okay, so Abraham, very significant. That's one of the reasons Paul begins with Abraham. If he's going to convince anyone anything he's saying, Abraham plays a pivotal role. Second reason I think he begins with Abraham, Abraham provides a continuity of the covenant of grace, okay, a continuity of the covenant of grace. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you think about Paul's conversations, I imagine that like uh, 90% or 95% of every conversation that Paul had, it began like this, okay, he would, he would uh, kind of explain the gospel And I imagine almost every person would say something like, oh, come on, Paul, get rid of that new idea. Where'd you come up with that thing anyway? Pulling that out of thin air? No, I don't want new ideas. Uh, New ideas are dangerous. They're strange, okay? And so uh, one of the works of Paul is to establish that the work of God by grace through faith is actually a very timeless idea. It doesn't begin with Paul. It didn't begin with Jesus uh, in the incarnation, rather it extends all the way back as Paul will establish it now with Abraham, okay? So that's one of the other arguments and you can probably resonate with this as much as the Jews probably held this against Paul, I would say many Christians today also attribute this to Paul. There are many Christians today who would say Paul is the first one to come at this idea or Jesus, so this idea of God's grace received through faith. They would see the Old Testament as being a book about people who are justified by works. Now, many Christians would, you know, they wrongly attribute that idea, and they would see it as a good thing, like, we're saved by grace. They were not. The Jews would see it as a bad idea, but all in all, uh, there's this suspicion around Paul that it's a new idea. And Paul will say, let me begin by showing you with Abraham. This idea is not new at all. It is, as a matter of fact, the way that God has always worked among His people, and so there we have it. That's why Paul begins with Abraham. Let I ask the second question. Uh, why, why Abraham by works? Why have so many people wrongly believed that Abraham was justified or declared right according to his works? This is, the, after all, the argument that Paul is uh, beginning to um, answer in verses 1 and 2. So listen to verse 1 and 2. What, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, it's amazing. Paul's sort of implicitly addressing the wrong beliefs of the Jews and some of the Jewish Christians and those he's speaking to. He doesn't outright address them, but you can hear them. They're implicit in his argument. In verse 1, he, he begins by saying, you know, what will we conclude has been gained by Abraham? All right? What has been gained? And most of the good commentators, they take that last phrase, according to the flesh, And they put it with the first part of the verse, not there at the end, so that it probably should more rightly read like this. What shall we say was gained by Abraham according to the flesh? Abraham, our forefather. What was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And that is to say, Paul's asking the question, what in Abraham's life and the way that he carried himself and the things that he did and how he spoke and what in all that Abraham did, what can we say was gained in Abraham's flesh? What did he gain? Right? And it's, it, is, it is now responding to this belief that Abraham was justified by works. And then he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Literally, he has something to be confident in. He has something to be confident in, but not before God. Okay? So you, you see now Paul is, is presenting this argument. He's saying, listen, you, you may think very highly of Abraham. As a matter of fact, they did. You may think very highly of Abraham, but even if he has confidence among men, what confidence does he have before the living God? Very important question that needs to be asked concerning Abraham. But let me ask you this, why is it that so many people for so long have held this belief that Abraham was justified by works, right, commonly held belief? Why have so many people believed that? To answer that question, you'd have to turn back to the book of Genesis if you have your Bible, you could do that. I'll just summarize briefly the life of Abraham, and we could talk about why eventually an understanding of Abraham gets us to the point of thinking, well, that guy must have been justified by works, okay? If you look at the life of Abraham, it begins in Genesis 12. It goes all the way through Genesis 25, okay? 13 chapters of Genesis. That's pretty significant, but it begins in chapter 12, and here's kind of how the story goes. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham, okay? And he he, he finds Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people, okay? And I'm gonna take you to a land that's gonna be your own. Abraham says, Okay, God, and he goes, right? And and he follows the Lord God. In chapter 13, he's there with Lot, okay? And to Lot, he says, Lot, listen, you take whatever piece of land you want, right? Very selfless in, in the way that he carries himself. So we see the selflessness of Abraham. Chapter 14, Abraham goes out. And, uh, and he goes out courageously to fight these kings in, in Genesis 14. And when he defeats them, there they are, they've been beaten, and Abraham says, I'm not going to take any of the spoils of war according to the commands of God. Very obedient. Uh, chapter 15, Abraham presents a, an offering to the priest Melchizedek. All right, that's, that's a significant thing that he does. He honors the Lord in this. Uh, later, the Lord God uh, calls Abraham, and he says, here I am, Lord, and uh, and, and God says, "'Take your son, your only son Isaac. Take him to the, to the mountain and sacrifice him.'" Abraham says, "'Okay, God.'" Right? And he, and he goes and he does. Look at the obedience of Abraham. Uh, God gives the sign of circumcision. Abraham says, "'Okay, God.'" And administers the sign to him and his household. He does so in obedience. You look at the life of Abraham and there is obedience to the commands of the Lord. And we also know that Abraham is declared righteous, Right? So you can see how easy it is. You begin to take the two ideas, you put them together, and you say, okay, wait a second. Here's Abraham. He's been fairly obedient to the Lord God. He is right. He's good. God declares him as righteous. You know what? It appears to be the case. Abraham did all that God commanded him, and by doing those things, Abraham was justified. You you could see how that conclusion's easily made. As a matter of fact, the you, you fast forward, second temple period and forward. So the second temple is built. The rabbinic literature from that point forward says that Abraham was justified because he passed the 10 tests of obedience, okay? They literally, they number them out, the 10 tests of obedience, offering up his son, leaving his land, paying tithe to Melchizedek, right? 10 of them. Abraham did them all and therefore God said, you're right, you're righteous, Abraham. Way to go. You did it all. This is, the, this is now the perception of Abraham that Paul's confronting as he introduces Abraham into this conversation about justification. As a matter of fact, the the Jews had taken the idea, I think, so far that they began to talk about Abraham as a man who was perfect or blameless in all of his ways. I'll give you two examples from the prayer of Manasseh. Here's a line from the prayer of Manasseh. It goes like this. Therefore you, O Lord, the God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, for Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you. The book of Jubilees very much says the same thing. Abraham was perfect in his deeds with the Lord, and he was well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And so you see how you read the, the life of Abraham, and then you begin to make conclusions. And before too long, you have elevated a man who appears to have been obedient to God in all of his ways, therefore God declared him as righteous, okay? Easy to see the idea of salvation by works in obedience to all that God commands. Now, I would say to you, that the very interesting, obviously we know that idea doesn't hold water. We know that no man may be justified by works, but if you would take your time and read through the life of Abraham just for a second, you would realize this is not the story of Abraham. You have to kind of squint your eyes a little bit and read over some passages if you really want to see a story of a man who was obedient to God in all his ways or perfect without sin. The story of Abraham actually, it has its mountains and valleys, doesn't it? It goes up and down. God called Abraham in Genesis 12, but then Abraham leaves with his wife, arrives in Egypt, and almost immediately Abraham is, is fearful and he lies to Pharaoh and it causes chaos, right? He tells him, this is, tell him you're not my wife. Tell him you're my sister, right? Then things will go well with us. We see as we read the life of Abraham, a, a man who was courageous in Genesis 14, but ultimately is cowardly in other ways. He vacates some of the very essential responsibilities he has within his home and, and, and how God called him, and that damages the relationships he has with uh, those in his household, with Hagar and Ishmael and with others. And so the life of Abraham, when you read it, it goes up and it goes down, and you see obedience and you see disobedience. As a matter of fact, I would say to you, if you read the life of Abraham, what you'll see is you're reading the life of a human being, right? right? Uh, you're reading the life of a regular human being. And we can, we can uh, resonate with that because we know who we are. We know what human beings are like. And we know that our obedience is mixed, mixed with disobedience. We know that our sin and, is there and the uh, righteousness and the things that God is working out. And we know that our hearts are torn and we know that we often do and we don't do. We know what that's like because we are human beings, right? So we know that this argument that Abraham was justified by works cannot be true. It, it absolutely cannot be. If Abraham was a human being, we, we recognize the fact that he was not a man who stood blameless before God, and therefore God justified him or declared him as right. This is why the apostle Paul says in verse 2, I'm trying to get there. uh, In verse 2, he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to be confident about, but not before God, okay? And you, you know what Paul means there, right? If you were standing before Abraham right now, you'd be like, man, you're a pretty cool guy, Abraham. Uh, you, you did the things God commanded you. I couldn't take my son up on a mountain and offer him to, to be sacrificed. I couldn't do that, right? And that's okay because um, in the conversation among men, we could say, Abraham, pretty good guy. And we could see his failures and we could see some of the things he did in obedience, but Paul says, well, who cares what you can say before people, right? You may think he's a pretty good guy. You may think he's not a pretty good guy. That doesn't matter. He may have confidence before men, but does he have confidence before God, Okay. And he's saying, listen, imagine the scene, Abraham uh, appears before the judgment seat of God, the holy, righteous, perfect, omnipotent, omniscient God, and could Abraham really say, listen, God, I've been perfect in all my ways. Of course he couldn't. We know that he couldn't, right? And so uh, Paul makes sure to make clear to us that Abraham could not have been declared through obedience to the law or the commands of God, could not be declared by works to be righteous before God. He undermines that whole argument. So then Paul will say, if that's not true, then let me ask you another question. We see the obedience of Abraham. We hear that he was declared right or righteous. So then, how did it happen? How did we get there? That's where he goes in verse 3, and Paul's going to make the argument that it's by the grace of God through righteousness that Abraham was ultimately declared righteous. Here's what he says in verse 3. He begins, for what does the Scripture say? Okay, great argument, Paul. If Paul wants to be heard by his listeners, Abraham is a good place to start, resting and relying upon the Scriptures. That's another one, right? You want to make a good argument? Go back to the Word of God. So Paul will say, not what do you think about Abraham, not what your tradition tell you, what does the Scripture say about Abraham? And so he quotes Genesis fifteen six: Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay? You see why that's significant right? Uh, you, if you believe that Abraham was justified by works, let me challenge you, just find the scripture. Go back and read through the life of Abraham. Find the place where God says, Abraham did this, and because he did this, he was righteous. You won't find it. Of all the good things that Abraham did, the circumcision, offering his son, leaving his land, paying tithes to Melchizedek, go through the 10 acts of obedience. You will never find a place where God says, because you did this, it has caused your righteousness, okay? And so Paul will say, but what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture said about the righteousness of Abraham? That Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, let me tell you two things about that phrase, all right? Two things uh, that I think are important for understanding the argument that Paul is building beginning, well, he's begun at the beginning of the book, but he will move on through uh, Romans chapter 4. First of all, I love, I don't know if you noticed this, I love that this is verbatim from Genesis 15, 6. Oftentimes, New Testament authors will quote Old Testament passages. The Hebrew is different than the Greek. And so you get two passages that you'll look at, you'll say, I don't see how that's the same, or maybe like sort of similar, and that happens often. But here, the the quoting from Genesis 15, 6 is exactly the same. So those who are hearing would have said, okay, Paul, I see what you mean. Uh, Genesis 15, 6, that makes sense to me. Okay. Paul says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. First of all, what does it mean? Abraham believed. The the Greek word pistuo. I mentioned it at the beginning of Romans chapter 3. I'll just say now is a significant word to understand Romans, to understand the rest of the New Testament. Like one of the top five words of all the New Testament. If you're memorizing Greek, memorize this word, pistuo. Okay, it means to believe, to have faith, to trust in. It's a cognitive assent of the person who's saying, listen, I'm, I, I'm, I assent to what you're saying. I believe it. I, I hold it to be true. Okay, So this is the word that's used here that Paul uses. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What does it mean? Abraham believed God. Well, let me say, first and foremost, I think that we often overcomplicate our faith. Okay? We tend to make it more complicated than it actually is. I know that because I interact with people all the time who say, "Okay, I have had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but what else do I need to do to be saved?" And I'm like, what do you mean, what else? Like, I don't know. Uh, it's as simple as that. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you have faith in God, and uh, and through that, you're declared righteous. Like, but okay, what more is there to this? No, that's it. And we tend to think, okay, well, you know, my faith is strong, and, and other times it's weak, and so uh, what does that mean? Does it mean I am saved, and I wasn't saved, or I won't be saved, and I'm, I'm not now, but I was, I, and we get this confusing, we, we complicate faith. If you look at what's being described of Abraham in Genesis 12 through 15, it's actually a really simple faith. If you read about it, here's what you get. Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 describe his faith. Genesis 15 actually mentions his faith, and here's what it looks like. Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you a land. And the text says that Abraham got up and went. Okay, and you're like, okay. Don't really find out much about his faith there. It's not as if he kind of had to spend time assessing whether God was valid and whether he was going to do what he said he was going to do. He simply was like, all right, God, I'm going. You told me to go, I'm going. Abraham's faith promises him the land in chapter 13 and it says Abraham set his eyes upon the land and God says look at this land all this land I will give it to you and it says that Abraham set up his tent look at that simple expressions of faith Genesis 15 we read it earlier God says I'm going to bless you I'm going to make you have uh, many children Abraham's like I don't even have a son how is this possible and God's like listen look out the stars look at the stars in the sky can you number them no okay that's how many your descendants will be and Abraham's like really what uh, and God's like, yes, I promise I will do this. And Abraham believed God. What does it mean that he believed God at that moment? All it means is that he heard the promise of God. And he said, okay, I think you're God. I think you're do it. That faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Okay, That's the faith that's being described by Paul, which is the thing through which we receive the righteousness of God. When you hear the promises of God written in his word, And you say, Well, I believe you're God and I believe you'll do it. Boom. That is credited to you as righteousness. Isn't that amazing? That's how the New Testament will go on to explain faith. Have you received the Lord God as the only God? And do you trust that He will do what He has said He will do? Okay? That's significant. Now, the simplicity of that is going to manifest itself in the life of Jesus Christ, and now the New Testament, do you believe that Christ is God and that God raised Him from the dead? Yes, that's all true, but this is, the, this is a simple expression of actually what faith is. Let me point out something else to you. In the life of Abraham, whom Paul will continue to cite, in his life, we will always see that, that Abraham is not the initiator with God. And that's going to be significant as we move through the book of Romans, right? We don't open Genesis 12, and it doesn't say that Abraham was out on a mountainside looking for God, and then he said, you know what? I see you, God, and I, you're going to be my God, okay? That's not what happens. God initiates with Abram. Abraham responds in faith, okay? Uh, God initiates. Abraham responds. God initiates. Abraham responds. It happens over and over again. Every time we read, God speaks to Abraham, He makes a promise to him, and then Abraham believes him, and it's counted to him as righteousness. This will be one of the ongoing arguments in the book of Romans, that the faith we have, though maybe we experience it in a way where it feels like we have moved towards God first, it will always be true that God first moved towards us, okay? And then we respond to Him in faith. That's coming in the book of Romans. If that's a strange idea to you, just hold on to it. We'll come back to it, all right? We see that here in the introduction to to Abraham. The second part of what Genesis 15, 6 says, what Paul quotes here in in Romans 4, very simply put, he says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him. What does that mean? It was counted to him as righteousness. Well, let me, first of all, tell you a few ways, a few things it doesn't say, and you'll see what this means. First of all, it doesn't say Abraham believed God and his belief was the cause of his righteousness. It also doesn't say, Abraham believed God, and because of his belief, he was declared righteous. What it says is, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let me tell you why that's important. For as many people as who will say, look, Abraham was righteous because of his works, there is equally as many people who will say, Abraham is righteous because of his faith, that his faith was the cause of his righteousness, okay? And the problem with that is if we begin to find the cause of our righteousness within ourselves, we begin to find our right standing with God based upon the things that are internal to us. So we would say, man, look at my faith. I've got a good faith. And I feel like I'm just trusting God with everything. I'm I'm singing Christian songs on the way to work. I'm praying all the time. I must be right with God, okay? We do that, don't we? We, we do that in various ways, and the flip side is also true. We would say, yeah, I trust your God and you will do what you promise, but I'm really struggling right now. I feel as if I'm not right with God, okay? The word right lends itself to its base, right? And in the, in the Bible, when we read the righteousness, we would say, I'm not right with God. It's, it, it is the same as saying, well, I'm not righteous with God. I am not right before Him. And if we go internally to hinge the righteousness of God on something internal to us, we measure it by the veracity or the nature or the content of our faith. When, as what the Bible says, is that our faith is rooted in the subject of our faith, right? It is contingent not upon the quality of that faith, but rather in the thing that it invests its faith in, okay? That's how Paul describes faith, and it is why he says to us. Not that Abraham had faith and his faith caused his righteousness, but he trusted the Lord. He had faith in the Lord. He believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that is a very different thing, okay? The word counted, logizomaius. I was thinking that this morning and somebody came up to me and said, the Greek is logitsomias. I, I know, I know, but I'll, I don't think anybody cares what the Greek is, really. The word counted means to account, to credit, to give credit for, okay? It is literally saying that one thing you have, and I will count that as an entirely different thing, okay? You did this, and I'm going to give you credit for it, I'm going to credit in this way. And I was trying to think of the best possible way to explain this, and here's the picture that I've come up with, and I, I hope this will resonate. If you've ever had young children, or you've interacted with young children, maybe they're nieces and nephews, or uh, your, your own children, your grandchildren, whatever... You know, with many young children, there comes a time where they're tired of their parents buying presents for everyone, and they want to buy presents themselves, okay, for other people. And it's usually a good motivation, right? Mom and dad, I want to buy presents for our family. I want to do that, okay? And so imagine a scenario, right? There's always a sweet moment. You're like, oh, that's so great. Way to go. I, I love that you want to get presents for other people. Imagine a moment where you take your five-year-old or six-year-old or your niece or your nephew, whoever, you take them to the store, and uh, you're picking out presents for everybody, and these are the presents they want to get. Like, I want to get this for so-and-so. I want to get that for them. This is great. They they want to get these presents. So they fill up the shopping cart, and you go to the the checkout counter, and you say, okay, well, how are we paying for these presents? And the child kind of opens up their little toy wallet or their purse, and they've got, like, a button, a string, and a Band-Aid, okay? And you're like, all right, well, uh, uh, obviously, you're not going to be paying for these presents. And uh, imagine in this scenario, this is what often happens. You say, listen, okay, these things will not buy these presents, but I'm going to count it as if they would, okay? You have nothing that will accomplish this, but I'm going to count it as if it will, and I'm going I'm to take care of this. You know, the beautiful thing about that, whether we realize it or not, that's only possible if someone else is willing to pay the price, Right? The the in that situation the parent the grown up has to say I'm gonna count it as righteous as it is. but the person at the checkout register is like I, I don't care uh, you got a button a string a band aid I don't care how sentimental this is somebody's gotta pay for it okay uh, somebody's gotta foot the bill it is only possible if another is willing to pay the price this is what Paul's describing okay. The picture of the child who comes and opens up their wallet and has a string, a band and a button and wants to purchase gifts has nothing to bring that makes it possible, but the grown-up says, I will count it as if it did, okay? And I'm going to credit it to you and I foot the bill. I will do it for you and you can just rejoice in the beauty of having these presents and getting them for Isn't that amazing? Paul says, Abraham believed and that was counted. It was credited. God said, believe. you trusted me. All you've said is, I'm God, and you believe what I'm going to do, but that is enough. I'm going to count it as you are right with me. You're righteous and holy and justified, not because of anything that you have to bring, but because I am willing to do it for you. This is what Paul is beginning to describe, and he roots it in Abraham in a very simplistic way, we read in Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what the Apostle Paul means as he begins to explain this to his hearers. And let me tell you something: this is what this book is all about, okay? And we've seen it in the first three chapters, we see it here in the life of Abraham. Paul is going to again and again and again hammer this idea home. And next week, he will talk about David, and then he will come back to Abraham, and then he will talk about the law and Moses, and later Jacob and Esau. But over and over again, he will say, listen, you have understood it all wrong. Here's what the Word of God says, and it's very simple. Believe in the Lord God, and He will credit it to you as righteousness. And it's not an easy righteousness. It's one that cost him dearly, but he credits it to your account. God has accomplished everything on our behalf. And it will always be a problem with humanity that we think we need to be good enough, okay? That we think we need to do good enough, that we think we need to think good enough thoughts to be received and accepted by God, to be justified by Him. It is part of human nature to think, if we can just clean it up enough, okay? God will accept us, and He will love and forgive us. The reality, let me tell you the reality. The reality is this. You can never work enough. You can never do enough. You can never clean up enough. You can never think good enough, okay? You can never do enough works. If you had all eternity, you could never do enough to accept the righteousness, uh, to receive the righteousness of God, to declare righteous in His sight. You can't do it. And the good news is that it's not based upon us. It's not based upon the commitment of our work or the intensity of our faith or how good it is or how much it wavers. It's not based upon those things. These things do not produce our salvation. Rather, it is based solely upon something that is outside of us, another person, another work. Another one willing to pay the price and the person is Jesus Christ. It is based upon God's love for us, rooted in a plan before the foundation of the earth that He set out upon, that He planned, that He foreordained, that He executed in the course of time and history to send His Son, that He might be the sacrifice for our sins, that our righteousness might be caused by Him, not by us, and that we simply must receive it by faith, That is what God has accomplished, and all we must do, the Bible says, is to open our hands up and to receive it. See how simple that is? Faith is simple. Open your hands up and take it, embrace it, receive it, say, yeah, you're God, I'll take salvation, I will receive it. I going to love for it to be mine, and I trust you, Lord God, that you indeed have worked this out. It looks like seeing the promises of God and saying, I believe you are God, and I believe you will save just as you have promised. I believe that you have done enough. I believe that your spirit is strong enough, that your work is effective enough, that your perfection is enough, that your plan is good enough, that you will accomplish my justification, my righteousness, my sanctification, my salvation. And just as Abraham believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness, so it is for us. Believe in the Lord God and you will be saved. This is the simple beauty of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Lord God, for your word, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. You have revealed yourself. Here this morning, Romans chapter 4. And you have showed us, O oh Lord God, that we are saved by grace. That the details that must be worked out are worked out apart from us. That there's nothing in us and in our heart, in our actions, in our works, in, in us that is good enough to accomplish our, our righteousness and our salvation, to be declared right before you, that we cannot appear before you and say, well, look at what I've done. That in that there's no confidence or boasting. But outside of us is where our boasting is found. Our confidence is in the cross In Jesus Christ, your son, who is the manifestation, the reality of the plan that you established. He is the one who has accomplished it on our behalf. And when we look to the cross and we see that very God of very God humbled himself, gave his blood, poured out for us, submitted his body to be broken on the cross, that the penalty for sin might be paid and that his righteousness might be given to us, be counted to our account. We thank you, Lord God, that you have done this miraculous work as the greatest miracle in the history of man. And so we ask, as we've been reminded today, the timelessness of the gospel, for it was true with Abraham, and it remains to be true this day and to the end of time, that for all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who will say, you are God, and I believe what you've said and done that by that we will be counted as righteous. We come with nothing, and yet you give us everything. And so we thank you for this, Lord God. Make this true in our hearts, that we would rest in the salvation that we've received by grace through faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.